Just a quick word from our sponsor, Pattern Life. I am so excited to get the word out about Pattern because one thing I learned the hard way was disability insurance. For me, researching insurance got complicated, time-consuming, and for me, I just got overwhelmed and trusted that my employer had some type of disability insurance, but boy, was I wrong in terms of what those details entailed. Pattern is great because it's actually geared towards clinicians and doctors and has helped thousands of doctors find and understand the insurance they're buying. You just click on the link in the show notes. I did this the other day. It takes two minutes to write your info, request quotes to compare them, or schedule a quick 15-minute phone call and buy risk-free. So request your quote today at patternlife.com so you can use your time better, save money, and be prepared for the unknowns of the future. Don't make mistakes like me and be confident that your family and income are protected no matter what the future holds. And with that, let's get back into the episode. Hi, everyone. An exciting announcement. We are looking to expand the Core IM team, particularly looking for off-air producers to help shape the episodes in the various stages of production, whether it's the outline stage or the script stage. Uh, there's also exciting opportunities in the outreach team, doing graphics, creating and editing bites, or even the website. Check out the link in the show notes for more information and email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. And without further ado, I will leave you in the very capable hands of our two dear friends of the pod, Evan and Greg, hosting today's Five Pearls episode. Every single day in our hospital wards and in our clinics, we have to answer the question about what to do with our patient's blood thinners. Answering a simple clinical question like, should I keep this patient on Plavix, can feel paralyzing given the mountains of data we have to sift through. And these are important decisions for our patients. Our choices on antiplatelet therapy impact the risk of clinical events that we all care about, like heart attacks and GI bleeds. These are hard outcomes. They're not surrogate markers. So the goal of this episode is to address some of the common clinical questions that we see when it comes to the practical management of these medications. I'm Evan Harmon, a third-year internal medicine resident at UVA and future cardiology fellow. And I'm Greg Katz, a cardiologist currently working in the New York Hudson Valley. Let's meet the guest experts who will be joining us today. It's an imprecise science. And so it'd be great if we could just plug in and say, okay, here's a, an exact estimate of their bleeding risk over the next 12 months, 24 months, 30 months, et cetera. And here's an exact estimate of their ischemic risk. But we just don't have calculators that are that accurate or precise. That's Dr. Todd Valines, a non-invasive cardiologist specializing in cardiovascular prevention. So the early stent trials, if you go read them, it was it's actually almost hysterical to see what they put people on to prevent clotting. They were on everything. Essentially, they threw every anticoagulant we had on a patient who got a stent. And that was Dr. Michael Ragasta, an interventional cardiologist at UVA. I think of it kind of like a seesaw. You know, the balance is the guidelines right in the middle. But you may have to tip one way or the other a little bit less or a little bit longer based on clinical factors of your patient. And that was Dr. Soha Iqbal, an interventional cardiologist at Massachusetts General Hospital. Let's get started with the questions we'll be covering today. Make sure to test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. And remember, as Shreya always reminds us, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl 1. Indications. And what patients should we consider DAPT in antithrombotic therapy? Pearl 2. Medications. What are the trade-offs to consider in deciding between different PTY12 inhibitors? Pearl 3, duration. What are the nuances of DAP duration in different clinical scenarios? 
Pearl 4, de-escalation. Should we stop aspirin or the P2Y12 inhibitor? Pearl 5, anticoagulation. How do you manage DAPT in patients who also need anticoagulation? Let's dive deeper into antiplatelets. When should we be reaching for the big guns and using two antiplatelet agents instead of one? So in terms of dual antiplatelet therapy for patients, really in my mind, I think that you have two buckets. One is acute coronary syndromes. Uh, if people have come in with heart attacks or you know warning signs of heart attacks, like I call unstable angina, or if they are getting a new stent or have a recently placed stent, in my mind, those are really the two indications. And obviously we know those can overlap. So it really helps me to think about breaking our patients up according to indications for DAPT. One, there are patients presenting with acute coronary syndromes. And two, there are patients undergoing stent placement. So now that we've gotten our breakdown, let's start with our first category, acute coronary syndromes. Dual antiplatelet therapy is the way to treat an acute MI, regardless of whether someone goes to the cath lab and regardless of whether someone gets a stent. So I think for optimal care, we learned, you know, if you even go back to the late 1990s, early 2000s, that in patients who have acute coronary syndrome. You know, there's obviously a risk of stent thrombosis for those who have interventions, but even in patients who do not have percutaneous interventions, patients treated medically. We learned from trials such as as, as a cure trial and credo and others that prolonged dual antiplatelet therapy was superior to aspirin monotherapy. Right. So the cure trial included ACS patients who got a stent and ACS patients who never went to the cath lab at all. Patients were randomized to treatment with aspirin and clopidogrel compared to aspirin alone for about a year post-ACS. This is where we learned that aggressive antiplatelet therapy up front reduces recurrent ischemic events in both ACS patients managed invasively and conservatively, and this benefit seemed to persist for at least about a year. So that makes total sense when you think about the pathophysiology of patients who have had an acute coronary syndrome. These patients have had an atherosclerotic plaque that ruptured. This argues there's something different about acute coronary syndrome patients than somebody who has stable disease. So it makes total sense that in these patients, more aggressive antiplatelet therapy might further reduce events. And in the CURE trial, there was a 2% absolute decrease in thrombotic events and cardiovascular deaths. So the bottom line is that ACS patients benefit from DAPT regardless of whether or not a stent was placed. And that makes sense, right? Because they're inherently prothrombotic and DAPT reduces thrombosis risk. Still, it always feels like the stakes are higher after a stent has been placed. So how should we think about DAPT in these patients? Oh, so DAPT after a stent feels like a loaded topic. As an internal medicine resident, I remember being told by a cardiology fellow, never stop the antiplatelet meds immediately after PCI. (laughs) Yeah, this has always seemed more like a commandment than a clinical treatment. You mean like it could be written on a stone tablet and not just in the (laughs) AHA ACC guidelines? Exactly. And I think that dogma is in place for two big risks that we worry about with stents, stent thrombosis and instant restenosis. So uh, stent thrombosis is a sudden acute clotting of the stent. The stent is fine. Lumen is open. It's big. It's fine. But the stent clots. That's stent thrombosis. It's a catastrophic event. It can kill people, and it's pretty devastating. It happens about 1% to 2% of stent procedures over out to a year. Instant restenosis is a more chronic thing that is, it's essentially what the word we use for patients is scar tissue, which is not too incorrect. It's intimal proliferation. So it's proliferation of cells. That's a response to the injury caused to the vessel wall by the deployment of a stent. That's what drug-eluting stents are designed to inhibit by having anti-proliferative 
activity, but it's not 100%. And so patients can still develop instant restenosis. But that's a different presentation. That's return of stable angina six, eight, 12 months after their stent procedure. It's not life-threatening. It can be treated pretty effectively by a variety of methods, but it's a very different process. So to boil that down, dual antiplatelet therapy post-PCI prevents stent thrombosis, but not instant restenosis. That's because stent thrombosis is caused by a blood clot, meaning antiplatelet therapy helps prevent it. And that makes it different than instant restenosis, which is caused by neointimal hyperplasia, which dual antiplatelet therapy doesn't impact. So DAPT has no role in preventing instant restenosis. And we really have to keep these differences between stent thrombosis and instant restenosis in mind because we'll come back to them in Pearl 3 when we decide how to keep DAPT going after a stent. And so before we move on from the discussion about indications for dual antiplatelet therapy, we should briefly mention a third group of patients that you'll see on DAPT from time to time. Yeah, Greg, there seems like there's a subset of patients with just diffusely bad vascular disease everywhere. You know, patients with a one-liner saturated by PAD, TIAs, CVAs, CAD, the list just goes on and on. That's exactly right. So DAPT for this group doesn't get a class one recommendation by the guidelines, but patients with a huge burden of atherosclerosis, especially those with peripheral artery disease, just tend to be more thrombotic. So you'll see DAPT in these patients from time to time. You know, there's reasons beyond stent thrombosis that patients benefit from DAPT, and that's prevention of other events that are, you know, related to their atherosclerosis. And so the more athero you have, and certainly a patient who's had a cabbage is a high burden atherosclerosis patient. Um, same with peripheral arterial disease and cerebrovascular disease. Those patients probably do benefit more from, you know, just kind of almost lifelong DAPT. Uh, of course, weighing risks and benefits of bleeding, et cetera. So we just covered a lot of ground. Let's recap Pearl 1. So dual antiplatelet therapy has a role in taking care of three different groups of patients. The first group is patients who have acute coronary syndromes, regardless of whether or not they go to the cath lab and regardless of whether or not they get stents. Second group of patients who get stents, regardless of whether or not it's in the setting of an acute coronary syndrome. The third group is a softer indication, but it's people who have vascular disease in multiple different vascular beds and a high thrombotic burden. Okay, Greg, so when we're putting patients on antiplatelet medications, which P2Y12 inhibitor should we be reaching for in addition to aspirin? This decision comes up all the time, both in the inpatient and outpatient settings. We have three oral P2Y12 inhibitor choices, clopidogrel or Plavix, Prasugrel or Effiant, and ticagrelor, or Berlinta. A good way to weigh the pros and cons of each P2Y12 inhibitor is to think about three things, its potency, its bleeding risk, and its feasibility. We prefer today, if you look at the, the different agents available, there are some advantages to using P2Y12 inhibitors that aren't not clopidogrel. And you know, if you just think about the issues that we have with clopidogrel, that it's kind of a messy drug in the sense that it is um, a pro-drug, it requires uh, really two-step metabolism to reach its active state. So basically, because clopidogrel has that two-step metabolism, it's going to take some time for platelets to be fully inhibited. Acutely, what you want is you want a very rapid onset action agent. And uh, Plavix is not that agent, right? So if you load someone with 600 milligrams of Plavix uh, in a STEMI, you're not going to have efficacy of that drug uh, for many hours, and it's kind of beyond the point where you want that. Um, 
ticagrelor and prasugrelor are faster on. Um, but even then, they may not be adequate. And, and, and remember, you're relying on oral absorption of a drug. And, and there's a lot of evidence about uh, STEMI patients in particular having delayed motility and delayed absorption. And it's not just the rate of platelet inhibition that we're thinking about. There's also the concern about whether every patient of ours responds to clopidogrel in the same way. There's a lot of variability in the genetics um, in how clopidogrel is metabolized, as well as it has a lot of drug-drug interactions. So you might have heard of a patient who's Plavix-resistant, or that some ethnic groups have a slightly higher incidence of not responding to the drug. These variations seem to be related to genetic differences in clopidogrel metabolism. Yeah, Greg, and I think some hospitals even use point-of-care genetic testing for all of their ACS patients. Some hospitals certainly do that, but this genetic testing has been tested in randomized control trials. The interesting thing here is that while it's certainly not worse to use a genotype-guided strategy to pick your antiplatelet agent, it's not clear from the data that it's actually a better way to choose your P2Y12 inhibitor. So you're saying I shouldn't bring my 23andMe results to my cardiology appointment. Would have been nice <laughs> to know that ahead of time, Greg. Anyway, all this stuff about clopidogrel metabolism is interesting, but what we really care about is how good are these drugs in treating and preventing ischemic events? So how effective is clopidogrel compared to prasugrel and ticagrelor? And it tends to be just slightly less potent as compared to ticagrelor or as compared to um, uh, prosegrels. There's clinical trial data showing that um, there's a benefit, for example, if you use uh, ticagrelor or prosegrel um, in patients who come in with acute coronary syndromes, particularly those who are undergoing PCI. Um, but in, in the case of ticagrelor, regardless of whether you get PCI. So, so that is, that is um, you know, we prefer to use those agents. Um, there is a slight increased risk of bleeding. And so, um, you know, if you have a patient who has a really high bleeding risk, we will tend to use clopidogrel um, versus a patient who we think has a low bleeding risk and a high ischemic risk. We would much uh, prefer to use one of the other P2Y12 in inhibitors. We have randomized trials like Triton, Timmy 38 and Plato to show the difference here. These trials take ACS populations comparing prasugrel to clopidogrel and ticagrelor to clopidogrel, respectively. The story is the same for both. The more potent drugs ticagrelor and prasugrel, reduce ischemic events at the cost of increased bleeding risk. Okay, so if you haven't gotten it by now, ticagrelor and prasugrel are your higher potency antiplatelet options. And to be more precise, these trials found about a 2 to 3% absolute difference in ischemic events when compared to clopidogrel. But how do we choose between them? So we didn't have any head-to-head -head data to compare them until 2019 when ISAR REACT 5 was published. This trial compared prasugrel to ticagrelor in acute coronary syndrome patients and found that prasugrel reduced ischemic events more than ticagrelor did with a similar bleeding risk profile. Really? That's really surprising to me, Greg, because I've always thought of prasugrel as having a bad rap for bleeding. I thought it had a black box warning in patients with prior strokes due to the concern for intracranial hemorrhage. Prasugrel data was a little more concerning because the risk of bleeding was considered higher as compared to clopidogrel. So I think there was a trend in the interventional community to start using ticagrelor a little bit more. And now you have this, this study that suggests that prasugrel may be better potentially in these patients post-ACS, post-PCI. So to be honest, I'm not actually sure how much ISAR REACT 5 or any one clinical trial for that matter should be totally changing our clinical practice. And something about the big picture conclusion there doesn't necessarily pass the smell test for me. 
I don't understand the free lunch argument that you can prevent ischemic events and not increase bleeding risk simultaneously. Speaking of bleeding risk, sure, there's drug-specific bleeding to consider, but what bleeding risk does the individual patient bring to the table, and how do we evaluate that? So people throw around the term high bleeding risk, and I I do think that it can be confusing um, and a catch-all phrase. So in my mind, you're either thinking about patients that have had a bleed prior when you think about high-risk bleeding or you're thinking about what are their risk factors. And age definitely comes to mind prior uh, stroke or prior bleed comes to mind, maybe not active. Uh, Other things that we think about are kidney disease, which actually is complex because it also is a high risk uh, category for ischemic events. So I think, and anemia, you know, thinking about DAPT, I always look at people's hemoglobin and their MCV and what potentially could their bleeding risk be there. So it is a catch-all phrase and it, does require a little bit more thinking than just there's a lesion and I'm going to stent it. I think that people are going to be surprised to hear an interventional cardiologist looks at the MCV when uh, <laughs> I guess sometimes the smear is more important than the stent after all, Greg. <laughs> but there are so many times where we come up with this great drug regimen, really thinking hard about someone's ischemic risk and their bleeding risk, just like Dr. Iqbal mentioned. But then there's actually the patient sitting in front of us. And that's where it gets tricky, right? Because how much does that drug actually make sense for that individual patient? So take the example of ticagrelor in our patients. Adherence can be a challenge here. I often talk to my patients about the fact that ticagrelor is dosed twice a day. And I tell them that you need to be honest with me and honest with yourself if a two-time-a-day medication is just too hard for you to take. And I also caution them, if you get a little bit short of breath, you can't just stop your medications. That's because 10% of patients who are on ticagrelor can have this adenosine-mediated dyspnea. I guess the other big side effect to remember, Greg, is the impact on patients' wallets. I mean, these meds can get pretty expensive. So insurance coverage is one of the first questions we ask is, can a patient afford this? What's the copay? I mean, these are real-life questions, and it makes no sense to put someone on a medicine if there's no way they can afford it, when the differences that I just mentioned are small. Just from a quick Google search, even with good RX, which should make things cheaper, I was surprised to see that Ticagrelor still costs upwards of 400 bucks a month, whereas Clopidogrel is way cheaper at about $20 a month. Prasigrel, I guess, falls somewhere in the middle between $200 and $300 a month, but maybe at the small cost of intracranial hemorrhage. Ooh, I think that's a little bit rough. <laughs> so while it's always good to remember the black box warnings for medications that we prescribe, I still do use Prasigrel in my patients. The key thing to know is that You have a patient who comes in and they're on an expensive medication that they can't afford. You need to switch them. And you should remember that every time you switch P2Y12 inhibitors, you must reload with the new agent. And for help navigating that tricky transition, we'll include a link in our show notes with a nice graphic from Circulation. That graphic is really outstanding. This is a great time to summarize Pearl 2. We can think of clopidogrel as the least potent P2Y12 inhibitor, but also has the lowest risk of bleeding. On the other end of the spectrum, Prasigrel is probably the most potent, but has the highest risk of bleeding, including life-threatening bleeding. Ticagrelor is kind of the middleman, both with respect to ischemia and with respect to bleeding risk. These decisions absolutely have to be tailored to the individual patient. Since the differences are small here, we're talking about 2% absolute risk reductions. Most patients are going to do well no matter which medication you choose. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest. Between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. 
Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. So we've covered indications for DAPT and the pros and cons of the available P2Y12 inhibitors, but we haven't talked at all about duration. Yeah, Greg, it seems like patients are always asking, how long do I need to take these medications for? They're asking every single day in clinic. The answer about duration of antiplatelet therapy is really a moving target, depending on which patient you're considering and which trial you reference. You may remember from Pearl 1 that we're using DAPT to prevent two major outcomes, stent thrombosis and de novo ischemic events. And so the first thing to know here is that there have been lots of improvements in stent design over the years. So the first generation stents were kind of these big bulkier stents with the first, you know, iteration of a drug eluting polymer. And there was some suggestion from registry data that potentially these drug eluting stents would have a higher risk of stent thrombosis. But stents have really evolved over time. There's the second iteration and even, you know, multiple third iterations where we have thinner metal struts. We have less metal because now we have an open cell design where um, you actually have some give in the stent. They're much more deliverable. And so while in 2003, we were really worried about stent thrombosis with even a short pause of antiplatelet therapy, stents today just don't have the same thrombotic risk. And for anyone who finished training even more than a few years ago, this represents a huge shift from what you learned in residency. It's a really big deal. Very short-term DAP doesn't seem to increase the risk of stent-related complications with the current generation of stents. We have randomized control evidence from STOP-DAP2 to show that there's a minimal risk of stent thrombosis in post-PCI patients who receive DAP for a month, followed by clopidogrel monotherapy. Even with just one month of dual antiplatelet therapy, the rate of stent thrombosis in this trial was about 0.1%, just incredibly low. That short of a duration is just so mind-blowing to me. I mean, I knew there were studies with good safety outcomes for three- and six-month courses of DAP post-PCI, but man, just one month? Yeah, one month does feel really short. But you need to keep in mind that such a short course of DAPT isn't right for every patient. For example, I always consider whether the stent was placed for an acute coronary syndrome or stable ischemic disease. Not to beat a dead horse here, but I feel compelled to re-emphasize that patients who have had an acute coronary syndrome are at much higher thrombotic risk. And then there are other things to consider. What's the size of the stent? How many stents did they have placed? Um, how much coronary disease do they have outside of their stented segments? Did they present with an acute coronary syndrome or not? Because that often does sometimes change our duration of therapy. And then sometimes even down into the details about, you know, what, what, what type of stent procedure did, did they have? Did they have a complex bifurcation stenting? Did they have a very short stent of a large diameter in a relatively distal vessel? And that's why I always look at the cath report for all of my patients with stents because it tells us about procedure-specific factors that make you think about a longer course of DAPT. And then there are also patient-specific factors that we need to consider. And then what else 
do we know about the patient? What do they have peripheral arterial disease? Do they have other ischemic risk uh, factors? Have they had prior ischemic events, either stroke, TIA, peripheral arterial events? How much coronary disease burden do they have? That's a really complicated answer, but it really is not a one-size-fits-all approach. And so, you know, to boil it down, it's, you know, what event did they have and when? What is their residual ischemic risk based on some of those risk factors I just mentioned? And then what is their bleeding risk? There's definitely a lot to consider. And to form an easy reference, we'll have all of this information available in our show notes online. Yeah, and I feel like that gives us at least a pretty good checklist to consider for each patient when thinking about stopping DAPT. But let's say everything seems to be going fine on DAPT. My patient doesn't need an urgent surgery. They're not experiencing any bleeding complications. So in those patients, how long should we continue DAPT? So I find it so interesting when you're thinking about the optimal duration of DAPT to go back and look at the Kaplan-Meier curves from all the dual antiplatelet therapy in ACS trials. You're talking about Cure, Triton, Plato, Isoreact 5, etc. They all have the same pattern. There's a big reduction in ischemic endpoints that's seen early on within the first couple of months, and then there's ongoing curve separation long-term. So the story I get from all of these interventions is the same. Aggressive antiplatelet therapy up front has the biggest risk reduction in ischemic endpoints, and then long-term, you continue to get a marginal benefit from continuing the more aggressive antithrombotic regimen. The bleeding story is identical. Risk is highest up front and then increases marginally over the long-term. Yeah, that's such an interesting point, Greg, about the ongoing separation of the Kaplan-Meier curves over time. I had never really considered that. But I do think that all those trials were looking at just the first 12 months, right? So like long-term, after we've had our patients on DAP for over a year, what happens then? You know, there was the, the trial that looked at really prolonging DAP out to three years. You know, those patients had benefit, at, albeit at a higher bleeding cost, but those weren't stent thrombosis events that they were preventing late. It was other kind of MI, stroke, you know, cardiovascular events. So prolonging duration or indefinite duration in the high burden atherosclerosis patient is a, is a benefit. And I think that's a lot of my patients. I tell them, look, you're doing fine. You're not bleeding. If I were you, I'd stay on this stuff forever. Now, it's easier than to interrupt it, right, at that point. You, you know, you, you can be more cavalier about, okay, you need to have colonoscopy, go ahead, stop it for a week, no big deal, go back on whenever after. But I think having them on that as a preventative or, um, you know, kind of prophylactic measure for preventing events is, is beneficial. It gets complicated quickly. And sometimes it's just easier to think about the ideal duration of DAPT based on the indication and what the guidelines say. And then you adjust it up or down based on the individual patient's characteristics. So after someone has an acute coronary syndrome, the optimal duration of dual antiplatelet therapy is 12 months. Again, that will need to be tweaked if you think someone has a high bleeding risk or a high ischemic risk, but the ideal is 12 months. So the optimal duration of dual antiplatelet therapy in someone who had a stent for stable ischemic disease is six months at this point. The guidelines suggest six months. I will say that that is a moving target because we have um, lots of data coming out that it could be shorter. But at present, I encourage patients to stay at least six, potentially nine months, and uh, go from there when I think about what kind of bleeding risk they have versus ischemic risk. If they have very low bleeding risk, I do still continue patients up to 12 months, but I think that's leftover from practicing for the last 12 years. Okay, that sounds so straightforward, but in clinical practice, sometimes these decisions feel not straightforward at all. I mean, it seems like a great tool to have would be 
I don't know, maybe a prospectively validated risk calculator for a patient's <laughs> ischemic and bleeding risk. So there are a couple of DAPT-RISK calculators that have been created from retrospective data uh, that allow us to understand someone's bleeding risk. Uh, some of those are DAPT, Precise DAPT in Paris. So those have a lot of factors in them, their age, their hemoglobin, their kidney disease. At least for me, I do find these risk calculators like the DAPT score and the Precise DAPT score really useful. I mean, they're just a quick Google search away, and they at least help me kind of quantify what my gut feeling already is on someone's bleeding risk. So when you do look at the risk calculators, it's important to know what factors they use to develop them. And then again, this is true for all trial data. You have to think of what age group were they using it in. Sometimes there was an, you know, an age cap of 85, and now you have this 90-year-old. So it's kind of how do you use your patient and how do they fit into the data? And so I'll add one caveat here. A really important characteristic that hasn't made its way into the calculators yet is frailty. Frail patients have worse outcomes with essentially all of our interventions. So I just tend to stop blood thinners earlier in those patients. So there are some patients that fall out of the risk calculators. Uh, and sometimes you just look at them and you know that they may have a high bleeding risk, but you can't find their predictors in a risk calculator. And in my mind, those are people that are frail, uh, though BMI comes into one of them. Those are people that I think this, the social the social factors are completely missed here. People that maybe take too many, may not have access to follow-up care the way that we would want. I've also learned that how you frame this conversation to the patient matters quite a bit for their anxiety level when they walk out of your office. I tell my patients, look, if we continue your blood thinner, you're probably not going to have a bleeding problem. And if we stop your blood thinner, you're probably not going to have a heart attack. But we're balancing the risks of blood clots and bleeding complications, and a decision needs to be made. On some level, part of the choice depends on your preference for which risk you'd like to take. Yeah, and that makes so much sense because if you look at all the data we just went through, a lot of the event rates that we're talking about or absolute differences between groups are actually really small. I'm curious, Greg, what do patients say when you frame it like that? So a real tiny minority of patients have a preference, uh, but most of them just end up saying, I'll do whatever you think is best, Doc. <laughs> Great. So, so much for shared decision making, I guess. <laughs> All right. So to give patients like these the best advice possible, let's recap our framework on DAP duration. There are four big points we want to consider. One, a stent place today is much safer than a stent place 15 years ago when it comes to thrombosis risk. Two, we should think of patients who had acute coronary syndromes as much higher thrombotic risk than non-ACS patients. We tend to keep DAPT on in patients who had ACS for a year, and we may feel more comfortable stopping it in patients who have stents placed for stable ischemic disease around six months. This number is a moving target, though, since it's a place where the guidelines haven't yet caught up to the latest trials establishing the safety and efficacy of three- and six-month courses of DAPT. Three, when we're deciding duration of DAPT, it's helpful to look at the CATH report and look for higher-risk features, things like bifurcation lesions, left main stents, multiple stents, and high burden of coronary disease should all make you more hesitant to stop DAPT without a really compelling reason to do so. Four, risk calculators help us in two ways here. First, they remind us about some of the clinical characteristics that influence bleeding and ischemic risk. And two, they provide a semi-quantitative framework to analyze our decision. But let's not forget, there are certainly patients that fall through the cracks here, particularly our frail patients. So eventually in each patient's trajectory, you get to a point where you have to decide to stop the second antiplatelet agent. At that point, you're either implying that the patient is stable enough from an ischemic standpoint or high enough risk from a bleeding standpoint to merit de-escalation. 
So how do you know whether to stop the aspirin or the P2Y12 inhibitor? So there is a lot of data about the fact that we may be able to drop aspirin. And I think this is really interesting and thought-provoking data, which hasn't fully come into clinical practice or changed guidelines yet. So Greg, I'll be honest, man. I can't say that I've ever really stopped someone's aspirin. I mean, there's just something about a baby aspirin that to me feels like just a less risky blood thinner than other agents. It's not just you. I've had patients all the time who are completely unwilling to take a blood thinner, but they're very happy to be on a baby aspirin. Patients also like going to the pharmacy and just picking up a bottle rather than filling a prescription. But it's sort of interesting here. Let me ask you a question. Do you think of aspirin and P2I12 inhibitors as having the same mechanism of increasing bleeding? Uh, You know, I guess I think of them as different, especially with regard to their mechanism, right? I mean, aspirin is an indiscriminate COX inhibitor blocking prostaglandin production, and so your GI tract just loses some protection. Exactly. And so they both inhibit platelets, but aspirin also has that second bleeding hit risk because it hurts the GI mucosa. Interestingly, there's some data from the Capri trial to back up that alleged double hit bleeding risk of aspirin. You'll see the suggestion in Capri that clopidogrel actually has a lower bleeding risk than aspirin albeit it was a 325 milligram dose instead of 81 milligrams. And isn't that surprising? Because so much of our practice is to stop the P2Y12 inhibitor and continue the aspirin. I think some of that is just clinical inertia. And the twilight study actually might make you feel more comfortable about doing the opposite and actually stopping the aspirin instead. This trial stopped aspirin post-PCI in patients who had high ischemic risk, and they included some ACS patients there. We saw that patients did pretty well from an ischemic perspective, stopping the aspirin and continuing ticagrelor even in this high-risk group. That sounds so compelling to me, Greg. And I guess I'm wondering, like, why isn't everyone just changing their practice and stopping the aspirin? So does any one trial ever change everyone's practice? We all decide to drop the single agent a bit differently. Even the guidelines don't tell you firmly which one you should keep. So just to summarize Pearl 4, the thing I'm taking away is that we don't need to stress too much about stopping the aspirin or the P2Y12 inhibitor. Your patient will probably be fine regardless, and there's data to support your decision either way, whether you stop the aspirin or stop the P2I-12. Well, Greg, we've covered a ton of ground this episode, but I think this last pearl is an important one. What do we do with patients who need antiplatelet therapy and anticoagulation? I think about the challenge of managing antiplatelet therapy with anticoagulation every single day. Think about how many patients you have who have AFib as well as coronary disease, or who have had a prior stent and a DVT in the past. This is a challenge that isn't going anywhere, and we need to think about how to manage these patients appropriately. Do you send them home on triple therapy, which means aspirin, P2I12 inhibitor, and anticoagulation, or some other combination of antithrombotic medications? So if you had a recent PCI, whether that PCI was for acute coronary syndrome or not, when you take triple therapy, your bleeding risk really, really rises significantly. And I think the consensus is that there is a sweet spot for combining anticoagulants and antiplatelet therapy, and that you can go, uh, you know, you, you can go to, to a point where you're getting more bleeding and less ischemic benefit. So as Dr. Valines alludes to, we've had a ton of trials to help guide this decision. The first place to start here is the WOST trial from 2013, which randomized patients who were already on warfarin undergoing PCI to single antiplatelet therapy versus dual antiplatelet therapy. The combination of anticoagulation with warfarin plus one antiplatelet agent had way fewer bleeding events with no signal for increased thrombotic risk. Okay, I mean, that makes sense, especially considering patients were being anticoagulated with warfarin. I mean, that's basically begging for a bleed, right? I feel like most of the patients we see today are on DOACs. Well, that's part of the reason why after WOST came Redual, Augustus, and Pioneer. We now have data to show that whether you're using dabigatran 
apixaban, or rivaroxaban, you're probably fine stopping the aspirin and continuing clopidogrel with your DOAC of choice. I think how we do this is kind of interesting. Uh, there is a trend towards keeping people on triple therapy for potentially their hospital stay, potentially one week, potentially one month. And I've always found that trend interesting and, and really try to scour the data to say, do we have suggestion for that? So triple therapy is something we often do, but there really isn't great evidence for it. But long-term, we should really be defaulting to a single antiplatelet agent with an anticoagulation agent, unless there's a really compelling reason not to. And those compelling reasons for potential triple therapy might be an acute coronary syndrome with multiple stents, bifurcation stents, high thrombus burden, or a patient who has recurrent MIs and just a super high ischemic risk. All right, Greg. So if I'm ready to break away from triple therapy, two questions that come to my mind are this. First, which antiplatelet agent are we going to drop? And second, how long should we continue single antiplatelet and anticoagulation therapy? So the only regimen that's really been tested is dropping the aspirin and continuing the P2I12 inhibitor. And the P2I12 inhibitor that's really been best tested here is Plavix. Really? That's the only regimen that's been tried? It's just so interesting to me to think about how much of what we do is based purely on what cutoffs or choices of drugs were used in clinical trials. So I guess with that in mind, how long are we keeping patients on the P2I12 inhibitor plus anticoagulation? So it really seems like once you've made it to one year post-ACS or probably six months post-stent for stable ischemic disease, you're probably fine stopping all the antiplatelet therapy and continuing anticoagulation alone. Well, I think we can wrap up Pearl 5. When it comes to triple versus double therapy, less is more. Remember, drop the aspirin, avoid triple therapy, and limit duration. And that's a wrap for today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, please share with your team and colleagues and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. If you want to add any of your own tips or share challenges, tweet us and leave a comment on our website, Instagram, or Facebook feed. Thank you so much to our peer reviewer, Dr. Sunny Antwala. Thank you to Max Had for the audio editing and Ryoko Hayama for the accompanying graphics. And thank you to Vicky Kasapitas for off-air producing this episode. And as always, we love hearing feedback. Email us at hello at coreampodcast.com. Opinions expressed here are our own and do not reflect the opinions of any affiliated institutions. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 